From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics. We do it every week here on Sirius XM. Some combination of the crew every week. This week, it's everybody, at least for most of the show. Shane Jensen is here. Eric Bradle is here. Audie Weiner is here. And this is Cade Massey. Seven and a half plus years of collaboration. Still enjoying it, fellas. Hope you guys are well. It's Tuesday afternoon. Recording in our usual time slot. Show will go up tomorrow on Sirius XM. Podcast land sometime shortly thereafter. We have a regular show this week. We have COVID segment the first quarter, a couple of open topics quarters, and then we'll close with an interview. Todd Golden, head basketball coach for the University of San Francisco, Dons. He's been on the show a couple of times. Uh, we're glad to have him back. They are one of the teams out there, sports teams out there, firmly entrenched on the Wharton Moneyball pro list. They are one of our teams, and we're looking forward to talking to Todd at the end of the show. Guys, we are still apparently in pandemic time. The, the little charts on the little, on the little web pages are going back up. I'm yeah. curious, other than that little tick. I mean, two weeks ago, we were sitting here talking about kind of plateauing at 70, 70,000 new cases a day in the U.S., and now we're up in the 90s. I'm curious, that or other things, what has caught your eye in the world of COVID? Well, I'll just uh, jump in a little bit um, now that my recovery seems to be nearly 100%. Um, Out of your recovery from what? Did you confess last week? Yes, uh, you weren't here. I confessed, and we and okay. we, we talked about it in detail. Okay, okay. Um, I, I don't, uh, I, no hiding. Um you know, one of the things I want to talk about with, with my students to, to sort of get their reactions, the, the numbers are really increasing at Penn as they are lots of places. Um, I found other students with, with breakthrough infections like mine, as in double vaccine and a booster. What I was curious about was the circumstances that led me to actually get tested was not the, the cold symptom, which is essentially a runny nose, which I have almost all the time because of allergies. It was the loss of smell, which they call asnomia, um, which was that's the that's so specific to COVID that it frankly you don't need to get tested once that. Yeah, right, right. You got it. Um, But I asked my students how many of them are testing when they get a cold, and actually, I, I, I realized I said. Don't tell me whether you're doing it. Tell me about whether you think your friends are doing it. That's a hey, you learned something about marketing hey. on sensitive issues, Adi. This is the classic <laughs> trick we use to collect data. You don't ask about yourself. You ask about a friend. Yeah, I figured I, I learned a little bit from, from you guys and my colleagues at Wharton. Um, and I got mixed answers. Some said I, that they think they are doing it. And others were categorical. In fact, they wrote it in the chat privately. They think that very few people are actually getting tested when they get uh, a runny nose. And because of the consequences, not because they're worried about getting sick themselves, they're all vaccinated. They just the, the quarantining is, 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 a, is a, an intense demand. Um, and that actually led me to kind of wonder about what the quarantines are. And I realized we have, we have NFL um, protocols. Um, they're very different than what, the, what they are at schools. Um, the NFL is much shorter. Um, if you, all you have to do is test negative twice and you're out of your quarantine, regardless of how many days. Um, um, and for the pen, it's, it's, it's just t- 10 days from the date of your test. That's a, that's a long um, period of time and people are therefore reluctant to get testing. And I think that's a problem with our data. So hold on, Adi, on the, as from a policy perspective, attending quarantine does feel 
excessive at this point, especially with negative tests available. So you're saying as a policy, an organization should have a get out of jail card. If you get a couple of negatives in, in a row, you should be able to, you sh- it shouldn't be 10 days. And you're saying because it's a little excessive, because it's so punitive, de facto punitive, even if it's not yeah. meant that way, that, that it's driving testing down, which is definitely bad. That's interesting. Uh, it's kind of interesting to me, the, the, what, what the, the continuing disconnect, and maybe it just still is to come between the uh, death rate and the actual test, you know, positive test rate, right? Because you said things are going up. You're, you're referring to, again, the number of cases. That's right. Yeah. Daily, the, daily the death rate, death rate been, con- yeah. continues to go down. Yep. Um, and may not, you know, because there is a lag and all this stuff and there's holidays coming up, et cetera. But for at least now, they, these things are, not, are, are, are somewhat decoupled, at least, in their behavior. Well, right. that'll be interesting. That's what I think a lot of us are interested in seeing. So um, you're right. For the last about, let's see here, for the last almost month, uh, Shane, the number of cases has been going up. I'm just looking at the CDC data right now. They've been going up since a bottoming out of about October, in this peak, of course, from about October 23rd. It's almost exactly a month from today. And in that one month period, just looking at the death data, the death data has not shown a subsequent increase. And even if you say there's a one, two week lag, that's not happened. Hold on, but, if it's, but if it's longer than a one or two week lag, I think if we'd have just guessed at what the lag would be, in fact, I think we've kind of walked it down before. It takes a you know a little while to hospitalize, a little while longer to die. I mean, maybe a month is too long to expect, but it's not that much farther than you'd expect it to be. And that's it? right. So that's the that's a good question. So that's what we're going to have to see over the next couple, you know, month or so. I agree with Shane. I think we're going to see less of a coupling, possibly yep. because of therapeutics. Yeah. Possibly, of course, because of the mixture distribution. Who's getting tested and who's getting positive and who's testing positive? Yeah, I mean, the people who are getting it are not the people. I mean, the, the demographic necessarily that were dying of it before. Well, unpack this a little bit longer, a little bit more. So what did you mean by mixture distribution? Well, I just meant that, you know, let's just, let's just take a simple case. Let's imagine there's people live, let's imagine there's a hundred possible ages. Let's just use that roughly. And you broke people up into quintiles, right? So there's zero to, they're not equal size, but zero to 20, 20 to 40, 40 to 60, 60 to 80, 80 to a hundred. The fraction of people getting tested in each of those groups are different than it was before. So it's a mixture. Second, the death rate is very different in those groups. And so um, the number of people getting COVID in the different age groups is changing dramatically. So you'd expect the death rate to be very different as well as the, um, and this is the decoupling that Shane's talking about. My guess is the uh, positivity rate is increasing in some of those groups and, but those aren't the groups that are dying. Yeah, so very simply, very simply, if the rate's going up in the younger cohorts and it's not going up just the case count, if the case count's not going up in the older cohort, then you wouldn't expect deaths to go up at the same rate because Adi's going to jump in here and correct us in some way. But that's, that's broadly what you're suggesting, I think, Adi. Well, I, I don't disagree with that. I just think that there's a problem with reportage that I think the older people are much more likely to be reported with a positive case. Um, one of the things that I talked about and I mentioned last week was that I called my doctor for therapeutics. Not that I necessarily needed it, but um, I wanted to you know, get in the queue, right? You don't want to be needing monoclonal antibodies when you're 10 days in and, not, and you're feeling awful. So I, I called my primary care physician and the immediate response was without a 
without a PCR test, confirmed PCR test, I don't exist to them, which I thought was interesting, even though I lost my sense of smell. And um, so I think that the elderly are much more likely to report a test and get in the database. And I think the younger people are much less likely to. They're to, also much more likely to be tested. To test, to um, be tested, to be reported, to be, tested. To be tracked. Because again, the um, other reporting thing is, you know, like, you know, old people are much more likely to show up at a hospital for whatever reason. And they all get not, tested as a matter and, of And I mean, that's the first thing they do when you get to the hospital is yeah. COVID test you, right? Um, exactly. And, th- and, then they, and then they either, you know, stay in the hospital or they don't unfortunately leave the hospital, you know, if they pass away. You know, it's also I, I'm still kind of fascinated by this reporting issue. Like, you know, you test positive for COVID and then you pass away in the hospital. Is that reported as a COVID death? Like, does that go into the death count or not? No one can get a clear answer on that. That's right. I don't think there is a clear answer. Uh, there it isn't all these. But it, it obviously is a very crucial answer. Yeah. As far as, far as continue to estimate the death rates for COVID. The CDC does try to keep track of deaths with COVID as opposed to deaths from COVID. And, and, but I don't think this makes it into these databases that we see, but I wanted to review, you know, Eric, you, you were great. I think it was Eric who put up the depth, the, the data from Minnesota. I, I think did. it's fascinating because one of the things that they, that they did is they actually talk directly about breakthrough cases and they're reporting for 80, 84,000 total breakthrough cases, um, which they report is 2.569% of the population of vaccinated that seems actually, it might seem low, but actually I think it's, it's kind of high. Um, but then the surprising number to me is the case hospitalization rate, which is around four and a half percent among the vaccinated. And I found that to be astoundingly high. So you're saying of the people, there's of vaccinated people, we, the Minnesota is reporting something like two and a half percent are experiencing breakthroughs. Of those, you're saying four and a half percent are hospitalized and you're surprised at how high that rate is. Yes, extremely high. Um, and that's starting to wonder about its data validity because the, uh, just to benchmark it, the, num- the standard t- 10% was the hospitalization rate pre-vaccine. That, of course, depends on the distribution of the population, right? So, but I, I, I don't believe the hospitalization rate was ever as high as, as that. I mean, it would have, I mean, only for the eldest of our population was, the, was that rate 10%. Um, and I'm doing, I've been looking at a lot of studies looking at therapeutics and they typically restrict their attention to the, to high risk people, which unfortunately includes like, you know, rel- relatively not so old people, like 60 or so, they consider them high risk. And the, and the hospitalization rate is 10% among that group. So it just seems to me that that number seems almost almost crazy high. The infection fatality rate is also high. It's 0.75%, which seems to me like a high number for a vaccinated population. Yeah, so the main thing that's going on here is you're surprised because these are vaccinated populations. And we keep on saying, I mean, the rhetoric has been, it's going to help you not get it, but yeah, it's kind of partial. What it's really going to help you with is not be hospitalized by it. And you're saying, well, it helps, but it's not helping that much. It doesn't help as much as we thought it would. Well, I mean, I have a quote from from the article. Shane, let me give you this one quote from a Minnesota politician. They write, seniors are 17% times more likely to be hospitalized with COVID and 19 more likely to die if you're not vaccinated. That doesn't drive with that, that number. It just doesn't work. That's just, I mean, you're not, you're basically saying you have a 20% death rate. Maybe the absolute eldest, I mean, really like 85 plus have that kind of death rate. But that, I'm trying to square all this piece of information and, and it's, it's, it's causing me some trouble. What's the sampling frame for this study? 
Yeah. Is it people that like, I mean, like, cause again, a hospitalization, like how do people get uh, identified as breakthrough cases in this Minnesota study? Is it because they got sick and went to a hospital? No idea. Well, I mean, cause yeah, no. I know. I mean, I mean, right. how do you, how do you get a hospitalization rate? I don't know. When you're identified, when your sampling frame is people showing up at a hospital with as a breakthrough case. Look, the reality is, Shane, you've said this a thousand times. I don't know what's so hard for the people in the CDC and other places to understand. You've got to have random sampling. Yeah. Random sampling of a population. Matter of fact, you could do a panel study, adjust for dropout, do random sampling. And you could get, as a matter of fact, you could do stratified random sampling if you care about different strata. In other words, you might stratify by age because you care more about certain populations than others. Obviously, there aren't as many 90-year-old people as there are. So if you do a simple random sample, you won't get enough people in the older populations. But it absolutely makes sense to get a random or at least a probability sample so we can do valid statistical yeah. inference. You know, Eric, Eric, th- what doesn't make sense is that we're not doing it because England is doing it and I'm sure other countries are doing it. England has about, I think I, I read the, a paper published by uh, a British uh, health, health statisticians and epidemiologists and that they have a massive 10,000 plus cohort sample that gets tested weekly. Right. That's, That's it. What they do. And they were published really good data on, on efficacy because they have a, a, exa- a really good test base th- to run this off of. We're looking at numbers that I just don't make sense to me because of the crazy problems of collecting it. And, and it, all this information is out there. And frankly, it's just shit. And, and it's not so, that I agree with it's the It's misinformative, at least. It's misinformative. Yeah. Yep. Well, so what, what Eric's going to elaborate here in some way, Eric? You no, know, what I wanted to elaborate on is so let's say the data that I posted, and again, it's not my data, I just posted it, is too high. So now let's start to talk about the reasons it could be too high. One is, as Shane mentioned, there's something wrong with the sampling frame, meaning the people that are in the sample are people that are self-selected to be in the sample, maybe because they were sick. That's one possibility, right? Another possibility is the marginal number that Adi heard is not the right number, and this is the right number. Third possibility is the mix of people in this. This is all 90-year-old people. That's another possibility. So this is one of the nice things about being a statistician. You can actually, in other words, we can elaborate what would make the marginal distribution in the population very different than this. We can enunciate what those reasons are. And then as scientists, we could try to, and statisticians, we could try to eliminate some of those reasons. I'm not saying any of those need to be eliminated here, but that's the, those are the explanations for why the 17 to 19 per times numbers that Adi read, if those are true, don't jive with these numbers. You have a sampling frame problem, you have the wrong population problem, or you know, in some sense, the, you have an attribution problem that what they're calling hospitalizations and deaths aren't necessarily attributed to COVID. I mean, those are, there might be two or three other possibilities, but those are good ones to start. Let me, let me conjecture on what I think of the, what's the right and what's the wrong. I think the 17 to 19 is not wrong. I actually think that's right. Based on, on what basis do you, I'm not saying, I people, hope you're right. On what basis no, do you say that? Based on other countries that are doing things better. And that's, that comports with their numbers. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, what, what is, I mean, I assume with this wonderful UK random sample that there's been exact kind of calculations. Yes, of they these have types those. Of things. That's what, right. that's what they're seeing. Uh, 10 okay. to 20 times more preventative of hospitalization and death, depending on your age group. 
as I, as we as I've said many times on this show, Israel is saying reporting the same thing, roughly that uh, that rate. What there is a lot of um, diversity in opinion on asked it is the infection rate, and I think that the Minnesota infection rates uh, and the re- infection rates that we're reporting here, well, the six to ten times less likely to get infected if you're vaccinated. I don't think those are. But right. Ali, let's be clear about this data that I posted here. There's no unvaccinated no unvaccinated people in this sample. This th- I'm not saying what you're saying is not true. There's yeah. nothing in the data table I posted here that has anything to do with the That's unvaccinated right. people. Right. This is the but positivity have, rate and the zero. death rate among the vaccinated. Yeah, but we have a very potentially biased sample. I agree with you, Shane, but I just want to say this table does not provide me any evidence of the ratio of vaccinated to unvaccinated. No, but we have historical control, which is, as we know, is not great, but it gives us some ballpark. Um, I I know what fatality rates have been for unvaccinated people, and I know what they've been for for unvaccinated people. for historically, but I'm just throwing this out because I, I also, when they, obviously I'm not in Minnesota where they're reporting 2% breakthroughs. I just look in my own sort of extended family and friend personal circle. And I think it, I mean, I, I think 2% is low. I think that way more than 2% of people have been infected post-vaccination um, nationally. And I think it's probably closer to twice that potentially, um, which might right, seem- So your, your, answer, your concern is, your, it's interesting. You're concerned. You're even willing to take the number of hospitalizations and deaths is given. You're just you're questioning the total cases. You think that number is too low. It it makes more sense that they would miss that than hospitalizations. Plus, it's consistent with the conversation we had at the top of the hour about testing all kinds of biases with testing or not. testing. Well, let's also be clear then, Adi, then the number to the right, just just for our listeners out there. The number that says it's two one hundredths of one percent of the fully vaccinated people for death, that number doesn't has nothing to do with the eighty three thousand nine thirty three breakthrough right. cases. That's there's three million two hundred and sixty six thousand plus people in, in Minnesota that have been vaccinated. There's six hundred and twenty deaths. That's I mean, that's what that's oh, two one hundredths of one percent. That's right. You don't think that number's right? Two one hundred. That's right. That's the that's not the death rate. That's the death rate from COVID in over a couple months or whatever that is. Of course, that's very very low. I mean, right. I mean, that's probably. By the way, it would be interesting, but I would guess that's probably something around the uh, the 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 car fatality rate. Well, let me. I, no, I agree with that. Let me ask you a question. <laughs> if you're someone that's thinking about the vaccine for efficacy. In some sense, and let's imagine the only thing you care about for the moment, it doesn't have to be, is hospitalization and death. Then in some sense, you know, the intermediate step of breakthrough cases is irrelevant to you. What you care about is the marginal distribution. You don't care about the, as statisticians, we like to break things down. What's the conditional probability of a breakthrough case? Okay, what's the probability of a death given a breakthrough case? But the, the general person just cares about the marginal probability. Who care, are you, We both agree these conditional probabilities are probably yeah. off, but what I care about is the marginal probability. Right, so actually there's an there's a, there's a internet meme going around that illustrates this, and the, the difference between the marginal and the conditional. Um, about 1,500 uh, people a year die of, 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 from mosquitoes and about seven from sharks. So which one should you be more scared of? Well, you would argue nas- broadly, internationally, mosquitoes are more damaging than sharks. However, if you see a mosquito or you see a shark, which one should you be more scared of? <laughs> no, but what you're also pointing out, Adi, is the intermediate variable in this case of the number of breakthrough cases. If that number is five times as much, it doesn't change the number of fully vaccinated people. It yeah. doesn't change the death. 
Nope. It doesn't change the marginal rate, but it changes the conditional probability that's quite right. a bit. That's and right. that's the key part. That's right. Because when you do get COVID, or, and I'm using the word not when, I probably should use the word if, but it's a combination of if and when. Um, you can sit here and you, know, you guys can sit here and say, well, the, the chance of getting COVID and then having a bad outcome, those all multiply and it's really, really small. But the, the, when the time comes around, when it's you or your friend or your family or whatever it is gets COVID, it's conditional that you want. And that's the thing that sure. yeah, one, if I get yeah. it, yes, if I get it, I care about the conditional probability for sure. Yeah. By the way, but let me give you another marginal. Well, it's conditional in a way, conditional age. David Leonard reported today, again, Minnesota, based on Minnesota's COVID report, like just a day or two ago. They say that during the Delta surge, I'm not sure exactly what period of time, what, over, over what sample, but this is, you know, a, a couple of months, maybe, that among the vaccinated population in Minnesota, the death rate of those under 50 years old was zero out of 100,000, zero. The, the yeah. death rate rounded to zero. So if you're vaccinated in Minnesota and were younger than 50 in Delta, you didn't die. Why can't and, you choose Pennsylvania and over 50? Give me something that's relevant. <laughs> you know what? I quit honestly. You're barely over 50. Pennsylvania is a lot like a Minnesota. All right, all right. I was joking. But let me, let me also still, say- By the way, just to put in context, that's about- at minimum, 20 times worse than it was before, where it was about one in 5,000. Right. So let me just say what caught my eye, because it's, it's, it's also related, is that, you know, Adi talks about the data and maybe good data, bad data, et cetera. I keep pointing to this data from the CDC website, and now I'm just, I, I have to believe it cannot be right. This is from the CDC website, just to be clear, not from Eric's website, not from some meta-analysis, from the CDC's <laughs> website, they report that of people age 65 plus, 99.9% mm. of people have gotten at least one shot. That number cannot be right. I, I just I don't believe that number. Yeah. Not true. How could it be so? I agree, but how could it be so wrong? I don't understand. It, it's, it's, it would be a stunning number if it was 95%, but they're claiming 99 north of 99? It's That's, remarkable. That is absolutely the number. Well, so... How is the CDC keeping track of this across America? Actually, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I, it's, it's pretty I, I would imagine it's pretty easy to get a count of the number of shots given out. But I mean, I don't you know, maybe my you know, maybe my age went into a little database or something and that went back to the CDC, but I'm not. A, maybe. All right. You know, I think the problem is not the, the, the count of the number of people vaccinated. I think we don't know how many people are over 65 years old. I think that's the real error. Really? Really? Yes. We yes, have a decent so estimate of that? Of course, we don't know exactly, but we, we would have a... But that, could be off by, that could be off by, by 5%, which would mean if we've underestimated it by 5%, instead of saying 95%, we're saying 99.9. It's an absolutely... I mean I, don't, I mean, I don't know what the error could be. I mean, I don't know what's the source of the error. It's not something I know about, but frankly... I think that that seems shocking to me that the they'd be off by 5% of the people greater than the age of 65. I mean, you know, births are recorded pretty well. Deaths are recorded pretty well. That would be shocking to me if the, if the error rate was that high. I just, again, I'm just questioning if that number isn't true, then it gets back to Shane's point. It gets back to, we're, we're, let's be a detective here. Why would that number be reported so high? It could be they're way undercounting the number of people 65 plus. It could be that there are a bunch of people 
below 65 that they're reporting or above 65. Maybe people are lying to get the shots. I don't know. Foreigners should be coming in to get vaccine tourism. Is that happening in, in relative? Oh, that's an, I, I hadn't even thought about that. It's another possibility. There could be a bunch of people from outside the U.S. that are over 65, get the shot, and maybe they get recorded in the same database. When yeah, it gets to over 100%, Adi, we know it's going to be wrong. They're smart at the CDC. They'll cap it, They'll cap it at 100. Yeah, that's right. They're it, smart it, at the CDC. It's they already above 100. There. They've taken it down to keep it from looking worse than it already is. I mean, I wasn't, there was no personal information taken about me other than my birthday when I, when, uh, when I, when I got my vaccine. And most of you as well, unless you did it through yeah. your own personal insurer. Yeah, yep. that's super interesting. Why, speaking of this public policies, of like we were talking earlier about the UK having this great panel, and we don't even have decent panels. So why is it? Why is this such a failure of public health? And especially now that we've been, we're a year into, not quite a year into, almost a year into a new administration that is probably a little bit more public health oriented. Is it just the failures of the beginning just kind of crippled all everything? And but. I mean, this, we I thought mean, we'd I, be done by now. We thought it was too late to start a panel. I mean, what, what's the explanation? How, how is it going to get administered? We, are, yeah. we just don't have a centralized infrastructure to do anything. And nationally, we, we just don't. We are a consortium of all these different medical centers and hospitals and systems that are barely functioning in, individually, let alone in, in an interconnected way. This is a colossal you know, error, and there just isn't a force to change that in the country. Because there's too much, too many people make their li- livings on that inter- that lack of connection and our administrative mess. And okay, hold on. What do you mean by that? I mean, what, how do you make your living? Think about how much how much of our medical expenditure doesn't go to medical care. It goes to administrating this this behemoth of a system. And you want to try to get rid, you know, streamline it. That's a, that's an immense process. It won't happen. I don't believe it would have happened in my lifetime. That says more about the length of my lifetime than anything else. Doesn't is wouldn't this be relatively high on the list of things that we should learn from this pandemic and build at least the capability of? You don't you don't you don't have to put a whole new government agency to run a ten thousand person sample. I, mean, I think the problem is is that I, we lack a unified medical system. It doesn't have to be process of delivering care like 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 they have in England, but a process of, of at least connecting all the data for all the citizens in this country. And we don't have that. Maybe we could create that, but that's something that we don't have. Well, if it is decentralized, each state has its public health department. And right. so states could do these things. I mean, some states have tens of millions of people in them. Right. I mean, this was Eric Topol when he was on the show. He just was basically screaming repeatedly about this one uh, one complete disaster about data collection, data organization. And that hasn't, it's not, and, and I think you're right about the, uh, the, the assessment that we thought it was behind us and we just have, it's always behind us. It's always at the end, right? Right, right. Every, every week we're, we're getting closer to the end and we're, we basically, we're like Zeno. We never get, we never get to the wall. That's um, right. it, it keeps moving away from us. So we, I, I don't think it's going to happen in this pandemic, but maybe we could learn our lesson and build it. I think. Or, or I mean, like maybe if it, once it becomes kind of more recognized, you know, by the government and by people in general, that this is an endemic thing that is not just going to go like, you know, go away. Maybe then there will be a little bit more of a push to like, let's try and get some quality data on just how infectious it continues to be, because it is essentially just an ongoing, you know, kind of medical thing in our lives. Speaking of ongoing forecasts on how many more boosters we're going to take 
on this thing, on this particular pandemic. So we're all boosted at this point. I think I was the fourth and final to get in just before they opened it to everybody. So if you had to predict over under people over under, how many more boosters or do you think we're going to get in this pandemic? How many more boosters do you think well, you're going to get in this pandemic? Again, I'm going to rephrase that as how many more SARS yeah. COVID yep. boosters yeah. I will get yeah. in my lifetime. Oh, and I predict okay. one year, one per year until wow. I'm dead. Jeez. I'd like the uh, poop. Eric and Adi. Um, I, I think you're on the right track, Shane, um, a lot, uh, but I'm not sure it'll be that frequent. The flu is a really mo- mutates immensely mm-hmm. here. I don't think the COVID vaccine has uh, the COVID virus. But, Adi, these things, we, but these things lose their efficacy in six months. They do. they do. But I also think that they lost their efficacy primarily because I don't think we boost. We, I don't think we gave the right dose. Right. We didn't put them right. at the right. We didn't boost it at the right time. Um, it was emergency medicine, right? We did it. We, we, it was a wartime medicine decision. Hold on. Hold on. Does that mean you're, are you saying you need to get a heavier dose? Does that mean people are going to get even sicker when they get it? No, I, I think that we, we didn't do it. Uh, I think, for example, there were some pretty distinct differences between Moderna, which was m- much less widely used than the Pfizer. Um, they had much higher dosage um, levels. Yep. And, and there was a bigger difference between, we have a lot of diversity. Again, UK has a lot of data on this. They actually looked at the, you know, the three weeks, the six weeks, the, the, the 12 weeks. We did it too close. The, the first two shots were too close. They should oh. have been 12 weeks, not three. Oh. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we needed this booster, because I don't think we had it right the first time. So I think this, the combination will work. I also think that, um, again, we were looking at a, a mostly unexposed population by the time we vaccinated. I think that by the time the future rolls around and we get around to fading immunity, so much of this country will have had natural immunity. And the other, the other thing that's come out of the countries that have good data, which is the combination of vaccine, particularly the Moderna slash Pfizer um, vaccine, not so much the J&J or the AstraZeneca, but the combination of the mRNA vaccine and natural immunity is immensely protective of, uh, against infection. Those two are extremely good. And I think we're going to see so much of the population have had COVID. Okay, hold on. Uh, give, us, give me some sense of immensely. Like compare, for example, hold on. Like, Pfizer on Pfizer, Pfizer booster on top of Pfizer, Moderna booster on top of Moderna versus a, a blend. So I'm not, no, I don't mean, I'm not, I'm, maybe I'm not, it's not the blend of Pfizer and Moderna. It's the natural immunity. Oh, that, when I mean natural immunity is okay. having had COVID Good. plus okay. a vaccine seems to be approximately a hundred times more protective than the Seems vaccine. As always, Adi's doing this pandemic better than we are. We haven't gone out and gotten COVID. <laughs> so we're not as protected. Yeah, I just want to try my best, guys. <laughs> I, I, I'm not. But back to the point, the question that was asked. I don't know that the number, the predicted number is what you want me to give you an answer to. I think you want a distribution. Let me say why. Let me modify Shane's. I agree with Shane, except I think there's a significant probability I'm getting no more shots. And let me say why. There are, by the way, in expectation, I'm probably at the same place as Shane. But I think there's a spike at zero. And let me say again why. There's a lot of evidence that many different vaccines, you get three times and you've built up enough immunity. So I think there's a non-zero probability that three shots could provide enough lifetime protection. I'm reading articles that are suggesting that. So I'm not saying I'm putting all my money on that. Maybe it's a 5% chance of that. 
but it's not like, and then I think there's a gap. I think it's either Shane's answer or my answer with a 5% probability. Well, I think the answer, I'm going to get one more shot. If I'm going to get one more, I might as well get 10 more. I don't uh, think the answer is one. I think it's zero. And then I think there's a gap to a big number. Well, a crucial unknown parameters that's come up a couple of times already in discussion is how fast COVID will mutate to a point where it's vaccine resistant or resistant to whatever kind of therapeutics we have currently. Uh, right. So that that's the big thing. I mean, to not have to get it to, for those three shots that you've gotten to be sufficient for your lifetime, it, it can't mutate very much from that's now right. on. That's true, right. too. That's true, too. All right, fellas. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the second quarter. Got the whole crew here. Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen. Adi Weiner and Cade Massey. We're doing two hours of sports analytics. We always do two hours of sports analytics on Sirius XM. You guys can join us. We wish you would join us. You can reach out on Twitter at WMoneyball is our handle there at WMoneyball. We follow all our guests. We tweet about the world of sports analytics. We'd love to hear from you. Hit us up with your questions, complaints, ideas, enthusiasm, whatever you got. You can also send us an email. We have a mailbag now via email. That address is moneyball at Wharton edu moneyball at wharton.upin.edu. We read all the email that comes in. We get as much as we can out on the show. We love to hear from you. Guys, uh, open topics segment here. We're going to save football for Q3. It's warming up, especially in the college football world, warming up. We're really coming down to the end. Big rivalry weekend coming up. But there are events in other sports. I, I know y'all's attention went quickly to the latest Hall of Fame ballot. You guys have been thinking about Hall of Famers over the last couple of hours. What do you got? How does the ballot look to you? Well, the, the key, of course, is that this is the last year for Bonds, Clemens, Schilling, and it's going down to the wire. Um, mm-hmm. And we're all watching because there's the 10th the, the year bump. Um, and I believe, just to forecast without data, I think Schilling is going to go over the top. That's well, fine. remember, he said, just to remind you, Adi, he has said he does not want to be on the ballot. He said he does not want to be elected to the Hall of Fame. I'm just telling you what he said after last year. That could really? be true, but that could he said that. Why? And, well, I, I well he's, he's got pouty that he isn't in already. Yeah. And he's also got, you know, he's he's made some political statements that aren't uh, consistent with some portion of the population. He made it very clear after last year to not vote for him and leave him off the ballot. He said that himself, not through third party. He said it. And I don't, I don't think, I don't think the writers on what you did on the field. And the reason why, well, the writers don't do that either, but yeah, no, they don't. Well, they do that. I mean, the issue with bonds and Clemens, two, 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 two of the top five baseball players ever in the sport somehow have gotten to their 10th year of eligibility without getting voted in. Yeah. But that has to do with the, with the, with, with not something on the field. Yeah, right. I mean, so, but I mean, oh, remind, remind, remind me who those two people are. Barry Bonds and uh, Roger Clemens. Right. And so the real issue with, with either of them is both of them is what do you do with that date, with that information? Right. So by the way, neither of them were doing something that was illegal at the time. They what they did was lie about their usage. And of course they used it. 
and that 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 poses a major ethical and moral. And it was it was if they unless they I actually just watched a documentary on this the other day. Unless they were of course prescribed by a doctor, it was illegal according to the United States law. And of course, the what baseball has said, and this again, I saw interviews with baseball people said if it was illegal, they didn't have to make it illegal. It was illegal, so it was illegal even if baseball hadn't explicitly said it because the U.S. government said it was illegal. Now. If Which, Bonds and Clemens want to come out and say that they had a doctor's prescription and they were doing it as a result, I'm willing to <laughs> then that's a different issue. But again, I don't, I, don't, I don't think it's an issue for the writers. I don't even think that would help them for the writers. I mean, I think there's a certain percentage of the writers. I right. mean, basically, these are two of the top at least 10 baseball players ever, but they both cheated. Right. Or at least are, are seen to have cheated during their time playing baseball. And so it's up to a bunch of writers to determine whether that's uh deal breaker or not and it's certainly you know i mean there's been speculation at least that you know a lot of the writers kind of maybe there's a collective decision that it would uh, you know that that making them go until their 10th year was enough of the that that was the punitive thing for cheating but i think enough all we need is above 25 percent of the writers to consider it a deal breaker and i think above 25 percent will so i I think you're not that you're doing it wrong but i think we're all thinking of it wrong they don't need 14% more. They were both at 61% roughly last year. They don't and need 14 75 There's two references, just to be clear. 75% right. is the threshold. Correct. Okay. They don't need 14% more. They need 35 to 40% of the no voters. That's right. I understand that's 14%. Yeah, yeah. The minute you frame it as they need 40% roughly, 35 to 40% of, of the people that Shane said, who I agree yeah. with, who will say, no way ever. They need over a third of those people to change their mind, and I don't see it happening. Yeah. I how, about about how, much- how about Schilling? Schilling is not tied up in the... Uh, no, uh, and I mean, he's closer too. So I think, you know, my, my prediction for the number of people elected this year is going to be, it's between zero and one. Oh, yeah. oh, oh, I mean, of those three. Wait, wait. No, on. no, 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 overall. Oh, you think anybody okay, else so will make it? Change the topic. Big Pappy. You don't think he's not going to get in first ballot? On the first ballot, no. A, he's got the steroid thing. Absolutely. At least in some minds working against him as well. He uh, was on the list. He was on two lists, unofficial lists, but th- yeah. that have been released. He was on I, those I don't, lists. I don't think, I, I don't think as, as, many pe- as many writers slash people consider him a cheater as Bonds and Clemens, because I think it was a little less obvious, um, but – you don't need again. I, I don't think certainly for first ballot. No, I, I don't. I, I think he would be even without the steroid kind of cloud. For I, I mean, I, I hope he goes in the Hall of Fame. I think he merits it. But a first ballot is kind of a special category. Well, look, right? Alex Rodriguez. If it hadn't been for steroid right. use, and he so, admitted yeah. it, he would be a first ballot. Obviously, a first ballot Hall of Famer. He's yes, a first. Right. You know, in the Brad though, he's a but, first tier first ballot hall of, of famer but but yeah. i mean but there there the steroid cloud is very definite so well, no, he admitted it yeah he admitted it now the question becomes because he admitted it not first ballot no does he get into the hall of fame because he at least admitted what he did so like for him they punish him let him go five six seven years he's trying you know he's now he's an announcer he's tried to do more for the game of baseball maybe he becomes an owner you know I could see a scenario where he gets in in six or seven years because at least he came out and admitted what he did. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly can see that scenario. I mean, I think it's going to expose a, an inconsistency that I think we already know exists with the baseball writers because, again, then they won't be punishing him. Then they're going to be basically that cheating's a deal breaker for Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, but not for Alex Rodriguez because we like him a little bit better. 
Right. He's a yeah. nicer guy. <laughs> yeah, you're right, Shane. What's what are you unclear about? Yeah, I mean, so I think I think they are that inconsistent. I want to have a slightly different criteria, which is what is the effect, the obvious effect that the that the steroids had on their career? Um, and so someone like Bonds, he became a, just almost a different player uh, overnight yes. from uh, what I would call probably what a second or third tier Hall of Famer to the no, best better than that. I would say I would say Barry, I'd say there's a good chance, not incredible. I would say Barry Bonds would have been a twenty five hundred plus home run uh, hit guy, a fifteen hundred yep. plus RBI guy, and probably a five hundred home run guy. Right around there. That that makes you a that makes you a Hall of Famer. What? So in your in your in the Bradlow three tier Hall of Fame bracket, where do where do you would you have put the pre steroid? I would say for the first ten years of his career, he was not even the. I mean, Frank Thomas was. He may have been on steroids too, but Frank Thomas was so much better than Barry Bonds for the first ten years of his career. He wouldn't even go. Mike Trout is so much better in the first ten years of his career than Barry Bonds was too. So I would say Bonds, marginal first tier, certainly a second tier Hall of Famer, but a hundred percent a Hall of Famer without steroid use. So, so, and but with so exactly which, and of course he made the shift. Uh, Clemens shift was was there as well, not as dramatic as as Bonds, and I think he was also a solid Hall of Famer before he was solid. But he oh, would I, never, I, in my view, yeah. he wasn't winning three whatever he won three hundred and fifty yeah. games. He no, wasn't lasting not. that long. He would and, have been a he would have been like a two hundred and seventy two hundred and eighty game winner with only whatever three or four Cy Youngs instead of seven or whatever the number he won. Of course, right. he was a Hall of Famer he too. Was yeah. Hall of Famer. So now the question with with A Rod is tricky because he started in the steroid era. So was Correct. he a steroid error from the beginning or was he a steroid user and that we don't have that pre and post that, that we have with the others? Yeah. And I mean, I think again, you know, I, I, you, I like the way we're kind of framing this because it's like, you know, if steroids didn't exist, what was the kind of, what would their careers have looked like? And I think, you know, if you look at kind of what steroids kind of gives you in terms of like extra longevity or maybe a little bit of extra power, you could even break it down and like start looking at their home runs and the distance they went and said like, oh, well, if he was on steroids, would that have not been a home run, et cetera? I think, I mean, that would be a very interesting but difficult analysis to do. I think all three of them are no-brainer Hall of Famers in, in, in this kind of hypothetical where stories. Let me ask you a question. I know it won't be this year, but you know, mm-hmm. this opens the door. There are two other people on the list right now that because of their position, they played, you could easily argue are hall of famers, Scott Rowland and Omar Vizquel could very well be hall of famers. And they could be the beneficiary of this era where someone, not this year necessarily, where someone's going to get in. I mean, Omar Vizquel, he didn't get to 3,000 hits, but he got to 2,800 or 2,900 hits, I'm pretty sure, which for a shortstop is a lot. Scott Rowland statistically is one of the top, certainly 10, but maybe even five hitting third baseman in the history of baseball. So you could make an argument that there will be beneficiaries of this. Um, yeah, and I, think- I mean, I just... It's- I'm Vizquel. not excited by Roland or Vizquel, but they could really? be in. Uh, Eric, talk, like, to about the, talk to me about Vizquel the dynamics. 688 OPS. Who does? For his career, Vizquel. 688. Yeah, he was a wizard at shortstop. I mean, that's what they claim. I don't know if that's which, true. Which, 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 you know. How many hits, uh, Shane? Over Vizquel's uh, number of hits, hold on a sec. Uh, Probably um, a lot. 2,877, as I said. Uh, 1,445 runs. That's, I mean, that 
I'm just saying he 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 will he'll be the benefit. I think he's getting in at some point. Eric, talk 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 to me about the dynamics that that are he's the beneficiary. You're saying when they there's an inclination to put people in. There's kind of yeah. Well, there's, there's an inclination. Like, I mean, remember everybody. Zero, they don't, 10 people don't people. like zeros. Yeah, everybody. Could, nobody. Most people do not want to send in a blank ballot. They can put up to ten people. They can check up to ten names. Um, one, if, if someone's a never Barry Bonds, never Roger Clemens, never A-Rod, never Big Poppy, so those four names go off and you say, look, I want to put down three, no shilling, I want to put three or four names here. Who's the best, who actually deserves potentially to be in? Okay, Roland, that, Vizquel, that's all that's left. I can right? believe that bias, I can believe that bias, but it's a little surprising that, I mean, maybe I, sh- maybe I shouldn't hold the Hall of Fame to a higher standard, but I'm also curious the extent to which voting has evolved like is there less of that inertia is there less of that anti-zero than there used to be and it really takes me to questions for Adi because Adi Adi tries to forecast this stuff with models so what can you tell us about your model Adi here's an even more rudimentary question what are the dynamics with number of years on the ballot like what's that age curve if you will the hall of fame age curve what does that look like so I haven't done the modeling of predicting who's going to get into the hall of fame based on just the career numbers um, that's hard to do because almost every player falls into one of two groups, either definitely yes or definitely no. And the numbers that are kind of on the border there are really hard to get right. And maybe that's worth a project. But you're uh, okay. Uh, maybe I'm, maybe I misheard Kate's question. I, I think he's asking so kind of like not the, yeah. based on their actual career numbers, based on the trajectory yeah, the, the of trajectory. their voting proportion so, so over there is the definitely years of it, their it's, eligibility. It's, Thank you, Shane. It's an increasing curve, and and throughout your ten years, it moves up steadily. Um, unless you're, in other words, if you're off the ballot, you're going to be off the ballot quickly. Yeah. And those who stay on the ballot tend to float up as the things, as the years progress. And there's a massive 10th year kick. As remind, us what the, remind us what the criterion is for staying on the ballot. You got to get a certain percentage to be on the next 5%, year. 5%. 5%. In order to stay on the ballot. And then, and then if you stay on it, it rises up. What, what, one of the things that we're noticing is, is that there's a shortage of, of obvious candidates this year. Usually there's a couple, one to two new ones. Each well, no, if it wasn't for, if it wasn't for steroid possibilities, Dave, Big Poppy and A-Rod. We're doing, be- we're probably going quickly. Uh, but there's a, what there is, is a lot of other people who are not, were obvious no's, even though they're, they were popular players for a short amount of time. Ryan Howard had a great year, career at five years in length. That's not going to get him done. Uh, no. Prince Fielder is on the ballot. Also, yeah, a five yeah. good years. I assume it's just kind of out of politeness. How, how do actually? I'm I'm interested. How do they decide who goes on the ballot? I think there's a minimum playing time, and there's some minimum performance criterion, but it's not that hard to get yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, so, Marcus so like, yeah, I guess on it. Uh, ask asking a specific question, a specific version of Cade's question, just following up on you know Eric's two guys, Omar Vizquel and Scott Rowling are both around fifty percent now after yeah. five years of eligibility. Are they kind of on track? They're yeah. on track. They really are on track. Absolutely. Okay. Because yep. what's happening is, is that as they move towards the end, they, they, they become less of a, maybe not, uh, you, when a ballot, a voter is trying to fill up their ballot, they got 10 slots. You know, they can always think, well, in the, in the, in the future, we'll go to that one. All right, I'll be the chaos guy. So you know what I want to happen. You know, I don't want either of these guys in, but here's what I really want to happen. You want the University of Central Florida in the Hall of Fame. That's right. I do. No, this is what I really want. No, what I really want to happen, which we'll get to in the next session, I want Notre Dame to go over Cincinnati. But let's ignore that for a second. What I really want to happen is I want one of Bonds or Clemens to be just on one side of 75% and the other one on the other side of 75%. And then these writers will have to justify 
why put either of them in if not both of them in? But and there'll yeah. be no way to change it because it'll be the tenth year. That's what I want to happen. And you pick which yeah. one of the two you want in. Yeah, I would be loving it. We, I will celebrate here on Wharton Moneyball if one of them ends up at seventy-five point zero percent, the other at seventy-four point nine. There's barely a, an envelope between them right now. They're sixty-one point eight and sixty-one point six. We don't know what the overlap is. Do you know what the overlap is? I think it's got to be pretty high, but we don't, yeah, but I guess. We don't know. Well, well, we would know, right? Don't people oh, no, actually? Have that data. That's about public. The about oh, the ballots are public. So we can take a look. Obviously, the, 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 the portion that are not public are the most adverse to, to bonds. and. Uh, I see. And I see. So it's, it's the baseball. They're, not, they're public Twitter, because right? a subset so, of the baseball writers choose yeah, to release their ballots. I, I forgot about that. My my forecast is that this isn't the last time we talk about this particular ballot, and so maybe we can let it go for the time being. A few minutes before we hit halftime on the show, a couple of quick items. There was video evidence of Tiger Woods swinging a golf club. What do, oh. what do, you, what do you make of this? It was, you know, it's little sandwiches, but but uh, what do you, what do you think, Eric? Are you excited? Is this increasing? Yeah, I think he'll be shooting. Uh, I think within a couple of months, six months, he'll probably be shooting eighty. <laughs> I think he's he's right on track to be as Justin Thomas said a mid seventies golfer for the rest of his career. Oh uh, my no, come on, Justin Thomas Look. said this. Yeah, hey, well, looking no, what forward he to said watching was, him at the he, Masters he, every year. No, what he said was he could play the Masters. What he said is he didn't think if Tiger ends up shooting in the mid seventies, he would try to come back or even play the Masters. That's not who Tiger Woods is. If Tiger Woods is not shooting in the sixties, he's not going to come back. That was Justin Thomas saying that implying that that's what he thought. So look to generate the club head speed, you understand most 40, he's about to turn 46. Most 46 year olds can't compete on the tour. Anyway, forget what, how many surgeries or injuries or other things that they've had. Look, I'm very excited. No one's been a bigger Tiger Woods fan than me. I want to see him back on tour and I'd love to see him. Could he be ready for the masters next year? Absolutely. That would be fantastic. I think the odds of him competing on tour again, under 25%. It's a little surprising at a high level why that would be, I mean, don't you isn't there some benefit to do you have to have that much clubhead speed to compete these days is that really what it is well just listening to the analytics people we've heard of talk about golf let's say tiger instead of hitting at 300 to 320 which is where he was even at age 44 45 hits the ball 260 to 280 ish he comes let's say becomes a 280 yard uh driver of the ball that's an extra one to two clubs that he's hitting going into the green. I think we've heard from all the analytics people that that's a huge difference. And mm-hmm. I think it's only getting, the gap is only getting wider. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, I think an extra 30, 40 yards. If that, if he can't drive the ball 300 plus, I, I don't see it happening, but we'll right. see. Well, I well, hope well, I'm wrong. That's not about wrong. I was so thrilled to see that video and I want him to come back and I, I'm with Adi. I want him to play the masters next year. Quiet season in golf right now, a couple more months before they crank up the 2022. Also quiet season in tennis. Give us in the last minute, Eric Zverev. Not quiet. Huge. Alexander, who still never won a major, just beat Djokovic and Medvedev, numbers one and two in the world, in the year-end finals. And And let me just say, if there were a fifth major, this would be it. Only the top eight players in the world are invited. He won. He, he defeated Djokovic in the semis and Medvedev in the finals. That's a great accomplishment. And I'm going to tell you something. This guy can absolutely beat anybody on any given day. Djokovic, my odds of him winning another major have gone down. Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Zverev are the new generation. Djokovic, 
He's going to win another major, but no more than one or two more. Eric, how many majors for Zverev next year? 2022 majors for Zverev. I will give him one because he's, he's won zero. I'll give him one, but also I'll give Medvedev one. And I'll give, I'm still going with Nadal at the French. I'm going to give one for Zverev, one for Medvedev, one for Djokovic, and one for Nadal. <laughs> well, we're only a couple months away from the Australian, so we don't have to wait very oh, long. Oh, Djokovic may not be playing. All right, guys, that has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a second half to go. We've got another open topic segment and then an interview with Todd Golden, one of our favorite coaches out there, USF Don's college bat. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into Q3, still have the whole crew. The last half hour of the afternoon with the whole crew. Soak them up. Shane Jensen's still here. Audie Weiner's still here. Eric Bradlow going to be here for the duration as am I, Kate Massey. Open topics. We have not covered football, either college or NFL. So let's do that now, guys. College football. I'm, you know, funny and not being paying as much attention this year. Funny how that works. Not real sure why that is, but it's going on. And there are some games to watch. Anything in particular y'all are Y'all have been paying attention to anything in particular you're paying attention to this weekend. Rivalry weekend. And I don't know if we ever had a bigger egg bowl. Thanksgiving night, Ole Miss and Mississippi State. If you, you only think you didn't need to watch some Mississippi football. This is going to be a good one. Adi, what do you got? Well, did anyone want to talk about Harvard-Yale game? Come on. I watched it. <laughs> I watched I the end watch of it. it. I had a lot of friends who were there. Um, and it was a crazy game and, and, uh, just, just, we don't have to talk about it. It doesn't have much implications on the national football scheme, but apparently Yale made some pretty bad, bad decision-making at the end. I don't know if anyone has any thoughts on that. Yeah. I, 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 I don't think it was particularly like the clock management was not very good. Um, you know, but, uh, well, Shane, I, I, you were yeah. actually, Shane, you watched the game. Yeah. I mean, well, I, I wanted to tune in some competitive college football. So I'm like, Oh, Ohio state, Michigan state, two top 10 teams. This will be quite a barn burner game. And it was over in like 10 minutes or so. Yeah. And so I had to watch yeah. something else. Yeah. Um, well, so that is one of the stories of the weekend. The line of course, going into that was, you know, 19 or something. And people were kind of clutching their pearls over this at Ohio state yeah. was so much, but sure enough, we've been warning you for a while that Ohio state had come back from that early fall and they were they've been looking like a top three absolutely and then a big drop off after that and clearly i mean you want you're not even you've been saying that for weeks that was even before oregon got thrashed yeah no no we we ohio state has has really seemed to clean things up they hadn't had the wind the kind of signature wind to show it oregon goes down i mean i don't think there's any great shame in losing to utah utah's been coming back strong but this is again Pac-12 falling out of the playoff contention, and one more argument for those who feel like we should have an expanded well, playoff. What, what's the spread? What's the spread right now for like Ohio State versus Michigan? Is it similarly that big? Or no, I think uh, Ohio State's what about a nine-point favorite? Ten? Yeah, I've, I've got so it. We feel they feel like eight, Michigan maybe. is that much better, even though they lost to Michigan State. Yes, but also Michigan is home. I think Michigan State was in Columbus, were they not? Yes. And so they've got a little benefit from being at home. Yep. We show Ohio State about 12 points better on power rankings. So, and, but, but they get a little benefit. They get, okay. a little, they get hurt gotcha. by the home field. Yep. Can, I um, ask, can I ask you about home field advantage in college football? We've seen home field advantage diminish in the professional leagues. What's happening with the coll- collegiate home field advantage? 
It's a good question. I don't have the numbers on it. I, they are, I think it's down everywhere, but I'm not sure it's, I mean, it's kind of disappeared in professional football. I'm not sure. So we don't believe it's zero, but it, I mean, empirically it's zero. Um, in college, I don't think it's that extreme, but I don't have the answer to that. It's so let me ask, let me ask four questions related to college football, just to get everyone's opinion. Maybe these are the four most important questions. They're the most important in my mind. At this point, do we agree if Cincinnati wins out, they're not definitely in? That's a heck of a way to phrase the question. All right. I believe do you that. Think Cincinnati I, I, I do not think if, Cincinnati is automatically in if they win out. Okay. How about, is there any chance? It's close. I think it's close, but no. I any agree. chance Notre Dame goes over Cincinnati? I don't think so. Not if they went out. Okay, They've got that head-to-head head in South Bend. I mean, come on. Mostly Notre Dame getting better at the end of the year. That's is, what I'm pointing is to. helping Cincinnati. Oh, oh, interesting way to put it. Okay. Um, if the Oklahoma-Oklahoma State winner wins out, is the Big 12 have a team in? Oklahoma, no. Oklahoma State is an interesting question. That's, that's Cincy's last rival, I think, is Oklahoma State winning out. So Oklahoma winning out wouldn't get them in? I don't think so, no. Okay. No, no, no. People didn't believe in Oklahoma before. Now they picked up that second loss. And by the way, Oklahoma State's favored – in Bedlam this weekend, it's not very often that Oklahoma State is favored. And um, it's even, you know, I don't know, three or four points or something. No, I apologize. Don't, don't better, Oklahoma and team. Oklahoma State both have one loss? Yeah, Oklahoma lost twice? No, once. Oh. They've, I, at least what I looked at the other day showed they both oh, had one no, loss. Oh, you're right. No, you're right. They've only, that was their first loss. They were just not respected. They're running through undefeated, nine wins. Everyone's, you know, yeah. so, so I'm asking you, if, if, if one of those two, the winner of this game goes undefeated, including the Big 12 championship game, and they're, let's say, 13 and one, is either one of these teams in? I don't think they're any more of a shoe in. I don't think OU is any more of a shoe in than Cincinnati. In fact, I'd put Cincinnati's chances above Oklahoma's. They, people just don't believe in the Sooners this year, and they've been lagging Cincinnati. And they're not going to get – they'll get some credit over Oklahoma State. And they'll go play who – maybe they'll play Oklahoma State again. I don't think that's going to do it. Personally, I don't think that's going to do it. And when – and maybe my last question is, when can we stop this farce this year that Alabama is this great team? How many of you watched that Arkansas game? They're not – they could have lost that game. This is the third week in a row. They barely Eric, escaped. You, Eric, they're you not a all, good team. Eric, you hate all college football teams. Come on, man. You're, no, you're, I don't. I love Cincinnati. I love I love. No, Ohio you don't love Cincinnati. Last, last time I was on the show with you not that long ago, you said they were, they were dog food. Come Who on. Was? Bearcats. You, last time you watched no, them. No, I said I like them. Right. I didn't say I think they're good. I just, <laughs> Alabama's that good. Why, I just, what I, I, evidence I, I, do we have that they're that good right now? And I mean, yes. I, I can't confess to watching things as closely over the last three weeks or just the season in general as you have. But I feel like this Alabama, they, every year they're like, you know, there's one or two games where they look beatable or they no. actually lose. And then they're in the final anyway. Now, Shane, you, this, this year is they're flirting a lot more with it this year. In okay. fact, they have not had many impressive wins at all. Eric, you still have them solidly in that top three, though. Yeah. So remember, you know, our priors are still going to weigh a lot, especially in college football, even late into the year. But we can look for a cleaner look to Eric's hypothesis. We can look at um, the, the, the in season only. So strip the priors out of it. And we still show Alabama third in the country. Now they're neck and neck with Wisconsin, Oklahoma State, but we still have them third, significantly behind Georgia and Ohio State, but they're still up there. 
And Eric, I think what you miss is they do play a significantly tougher schedule than other teams. So when they go out and Arkansas gives them a good run, you might look at Arkansas and say, I don't know, they're 500 team, but they are, they are a legit team and they play, they play the toughest. They play, they play an SEC schedule. So that 500 is no tragedy. And I hate the SEC stuff. I do, but there's no getting around the fact that they LSU, the LSU game. That was a trash game. No question. That was a trash the game. The Florida game? I don't know. Florida, we don't know what's Florida kind of they something funny happened in that program this year. They were they were a different team at that point in the season. They lost to Texas AM. All I'm commenting on is if I look at their quality opponents, yeah. they've won all of the qual except for Miami, and who knows if they're any good, but they they've they've won a lot of close games. They've won them. I give them credit. I just don't see any let me just say. If someone tells me that they lose even a close game to Georgia in the in the SEC championship game, if they take a two loss Alabama, I I will be beside myself. This is not the year where are, they are, deserve are, it. They, they're starting to sound like the college football version of the Baltimore Ravens, which just like continue to like win games, but you're kind of like, okay, every, well, single, one, every single one of them, you're like, really, okay. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, look, it's fun to pull against Alabama this year because they seem to be down for sure. And they are down, even with priors are down relative to where we usually see them. But um, I'd, I'd be a little hesitant to jump off as far as you're jumping off, Eric. Um, I do think it's, I mean, look, you, you're a chaos guy. You want, I think, the following things to happen for maximum chaos. Okay. You want Oklahoma State to beat Oklahoma and then Baylor in the Big 12 Championship. You want Alabama to probably have a good run against Georgia, lose on a last-second field goal kind of thing. Yep. And that's it. That's what you have in play. And then it will be Alabama, Oklahoma State, or Cincinnati to join. Well, assuming Ohio State gets through. Actually, well, yeah, probably. Wouldn't, wouldn't you actually, want Ohio if, State if the Michigan, the Michigan-Ohio no, no. State winner who wins out, if they win out, is going to go. Michigan will go. If they beat Ohio State. Yeah, either one of those teams, I think if they – whoever wins that and goes on to play Wisconsin, I guess, in the West, yep. if they win out, they're going to go. They're so gone. what if they go – what if they go – do you want – what if – The winner of that rivalry game loses to Wisconsin. That's yeah, you want that, right? Else, For Mets, right? Does that knock them out? Does that knock them out? Or are they in the mix with these other teams? They'd be two losses, right? They no would be. Everybody – so Michigan, losses. Michigan, Ohio State – all would have two losses. I don't even know. Does Wisconsin have just one loss or two? So take take the best of those teams. Take Ohio State. They got three losses. Take uh, Ohio State. Take Ohio State. They beat Michigan. They go in and somehow Wisconsin. By the way, we love Wisconsin. In our model right now, we have Wisconsin number four in the country. All right. So, so let's say Wisconsin beats Ohio State. So Wisconsin, exactly. Ohio State's got two losses. Michigan's got two losses. Michigan State has Alabama's got two losses. Alabama has uh, two losses. Oklahoma State has one. Since he has zero, and they've got to pick like two of these four teams. That's fun. Is that chaos? That's, 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 pre- that's pretty good. Under I that like scenario, that. very high probability scenario, I think since he gets in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, I think there, but a, here's another question. Is there, I guess there's no chance. Is there any chance they take a one loss Notre Dame team over a two loss Alabama? or a two-loss Ohio State or Michigan team? A two-loss, yes, if, especially if Alabama gets trashed by Georgia. That would be a, that'd be like show them the exit, which a lot of people would enjoy that. They lose about 21 to Georgia. I don't know. Notre Dame was so off the radar for most of the season. It is a political thing. They have slid up to, what, like sixth or something? Six. In the yep. latest? Yep. Um, so 
I mean, Notre Dame, people love Notre Dame. So it's possible. All right, guys, that's enough on college football for now. We're in speculation season. Big weekend ahead. Good weekend to pick up some college football. So, um, again, Mississippi, Mississippi State, it's a one-point line. That's going to be a fun one. On the NFL side, Shane just alluded to our Baltimore Ravens sneaking by another another team, another the Chicago Bears this time. Last oh, wow. yeah, No, yeah, quite the, quite, the, quite the impressive victory over a quality Hey, team. Lamar Jackson was not even there. Tyler Hundley. Hundley, your quarterback, Shane? Come on, man. What do you expect from the guy? <laughs> no, it's true. It's true. It's true. I, I remember the Ravens. I mean, let me just defend him for a while. How many, I mean, how many running backs is it possible to have lost for the season from a single team? I mean, there must be breaking records for this. No. And I mean, that, yeah, they, I, I, it's, they also like, you know, have a, a lot of defensive high paid defensive talents yeah. basically injured. No, I, I, I just, you know, I, I kind of feel like they've, they've looked terrible um, a lot when I've watched them and somehow managed to win games. Yeah. So, I mean, I, you know, that's so do you read talking- anything into that? Is there any, is there any signal there? I read, I, I, yes. I, I, I read above average coaching at the minimum into that. I also read, I, I read, I also I read, read the, good coaching. They have a, also read that they have a solid team. They have a solid team. In other words, they're able to win with a inferior quarterback because of their defense they're just, you know, the coaching, the defense, et cetera. Yeah, I do read something into that. But look, we got if we're going to talk about the NFL, let's talk about the following scenario. Do you think there's a chance that the Browns go into Baltimore and win that game? Of course there is, right? There's a yeah. chance, oh, right? A chance. Come on. All right. Well, if that happens and the Patriots beat the Titans, do you know who the number one seed is in the AFC? Patriots. Patriots. <laughs> Patriots would be yeah. the one seed in the AFC after this week because they would hold the tiebreaker against the Titans. I mean, yeah. I mean this still got... game, this Titans Patriot game is it's an incredibly I mean, the Patriots win that game. They're on track to be with well, maybe the one seed, two seed. They're on track to be one of the certainly the top three teams in the yeah. AFC. Uh, no, I mean, I, 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 I would not. I mean, they've got a very tough like because they play the Titans, they play the Bills still twice, they play the Colts still. I, I don't, I, I, if I was a betting man, I would say not the number one seed for the Patriots. But oh my goodness, they're doing so much better than I thought they would in general. I'm, I, I'm nothing but pleased about the Patriots. I, I'm gonna log my prediction of the number one seed right now. It's the Kansas City Chiefs. It always was going to be. They tricked us for a while, but it always was going to be the Kansas City Chiefs. So that's not crazy, right? I mean, so what do no. you think? Going- no, they've got they're seven and four. Yeah, right now fine. they're 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 a game back of the Titans as well. But I mean, I I could easily see the Titans losing a game or two to come. They seem kind of in disarray, and I mean, the Patriots certainly will be tough for them. I don't I don't know how the Titans have done what they've done. They're going into. New England, they're six and a half point underdogs in New England. Um, so I don't, I don't, they maybe they're still riding the momentum of Derrick Henry and they're well, going to eventually start feeling. Let me just tell you, it's to bolster your thing. Here are the six games remaining for the Chiefs, Shane. And it's not, it's not horrible, but it's not murderer's row. Broncos at home, Raiders at home, at Chargers, which will be a significant game, home to the Steelers. At Bengals, at Broncos. What's interesting is those are all good medium quality teams, all in sure. that middle range. But there's they could sure. easily win five out of the six, if not all of those games. They're yeah. twelve and five. That get them the one seed or two seed. Yeah. Sure, of course. Let me give you a forecast. We've got running the sim, yeah. running a sim using Massey Peabody stuff, running the sim on unabated. Of course, we've got the Chiefs at ten point eight wins. 
So I'll take the over. You take the over on that. We have the we yeah. have the speaking of the pass, the pass at 10.5. So right there, real close. Bills 10.3, Ravens 10.9. That is quite the race. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is quite the race. We do have the Titans as uh, about a half a game above those guys looking at number one seed, 11, 11.4 wins. But man, that is a heck of a race for if you do, especially if you're short the Titans, then you've got all these teams within a half a game yeah. of forecasted wins for the first seed. No, well, I mean, like, like it's certainly yeah. wide. I, I feel like unlike most seasons, I, I feel like the number one or number two seed is not so wide open. I, I mean, A, I think most seasons three or four losses basically knocks you out. Like there's very few, I think, number one seeds in the last few years that have had that many losses, basically. So I think things are more wide open this time around than they usually are. Right. I also left uh, out something else that also changed my opinion. Uh, I didn't realize, I never, I don't know why I didn't think of this because this has been true for years and years and years. You know, obviously the first tiebreaker after head to head is conference record. The Patriots obviously have been in a stinky conference for a long time. So they get six games against really bad teams in their con- – now, this year the Bills are good. But I'm just saying, though, mm-hmm. they, the right now, I'm staring at it right now. You know what team in the – Wait, division the record best- or conference record is the tiebreaker? It's division record within your division, head-to-head division. But if let's say the Chiefs end up tied with the Patriots, you know, after head-to-head, it's conference record. The yeah. Patriots have the best record in the AFC right now. The best record. That's why I said if they beat the Titans and the Ravens lose, the Patriots move to the number one yeah. seed because they have a better conference record than the Ravens. And so all I'm commenting on is the Patriots have an advantage in that in the Ravens division, everybody's at least decent to good. They got to yeah. play six games against decent teams. The Jets stink. The Dolphins stink. And, the, and Kansas City also. I mean, I, I think they'll probably be- manhandle the Broncos twice don't get me wrong but I mean they also have a more competitive division certainly than the the Patriots than the AFC East remains I mean the AFC East has two very good teams but also two very bad teams yep so guys let's talk about the NFC for a moment we have Arizona continuing to sneak up the rankings we have Arizona third in the overall power rankings just behind Buffalo and of course both of them about a field goal behind Tampa Bay Um, Arizona and Tampa Bay looking by kind of vying vying for this and green Bay is in the mix as well for that number one spot out of the NFC. We have Arizona forecast at 12.7 wins, Tampa Bay at 12 green Bay at 11 and a half, 11.6. Well, can we talk about some great games? If we're going to talk about great games this week, you just, I'll just use the NFC team, the Buccaneers at Colts. If you had asked yeah. me four weeks ago, I'd have said that game's a route. That game's no route. Nope. Buccaneers at Colts. I'm not even sure who's yeah. favored that much in that. I mean, the Bucks are going to be favored, but I'm not sure they should be three and a half. I don't know. What, what does Massey Peabody have Bucks and Colts right now? So we have the, the line is two and a half in and that the Tampa Bay's favored by two and a half. We show it at like four and a half. And so we, we right, like, I was about right. Three and a half. I'm, I'm, I'm in the zone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Packers yeah. Rams is going to be a huge yeah Rams at Packers uh, I mean seed. Rams at Packers could be a game for the one seed that's a yeah. huge game this weekend it is a it is a fun NFL weekend I feel like it's one of the better ones we've had for a little while of course we've got the three games on Thanksgiving day why don't we just pick a few of these games guys we need yeah. to pull Adi in here let's see what you got Adi um, we don't need the early game, you know, Detroit, you're not, you're like dealing with the turkey and stuff, dealing with lunch. You, you kind of got the game in the background, but By the way, mid- just, just to be clear, there's no guarantee that Detroit is, uh, the, that the bears are going into Detroit and winning that game. There's no guarantee of that. No, no we're just not interested. The Lions have been yeah, terrible. We're not interested. 
forever, <laughs> but they always seem a little bit competitive on Thanksgiving Day, I feel like. <laughs> Is that right? I, I, my only memory is like walking through the living room and they're on the TV. Um, Las Vegas goes to Dallas. How do we feel about the Cowboys anyway? The line here is seven and a half, and Massey Peabody, at least, isn't buying it at all. So um, I don't know if that's – I shouldn't tell you that. Well, everyone should have the same information. So we're going to pick this game. Um, the Cowboys, I mean, I mean, up and down. Uh, generally, Massey, Massey Peabody has them like 11th. We're not big on the Cowboys. We're shorter than the rest of the world. What do you got? Cowboys given seven and a half in the midday game on Thanksgiving. I just think the, the Raiders, you know, if there was a, you know, portions of the season, people would tend to break it up into quarters. The Raiders are not on the up. They're on the down. If you had asked me a couple of weeks ago, I would have said, even if though the Cowboys were looking better, I would have said the Raiders would have had a reasonable chance. I think that I, I wouldn't bet the game. I don't think the line's about right. I think the Cowboys should win that game somewhere in the, I don't know, if you tell me it's five point win, fine, 10 point win, I'd believe that too. I, I don't like the on the road at Cowboys in this game at all. That's so my prediction. I'm, I'm coding that as Cowboys minus seven and a half, but you really don't like to bet one way or the other. Adi. Is, is minus seven and a half an enormous amount for this Yeah, it's a pretty big line. Not enormous, yeah. no, but it is a big line. Yeah, so I, I think it's too much. So what, what does Massey Pete up, Adi, think? Uh, three and 3.8. No, yeah, yeah, 3.8. So I, that's I probably not up. enough. In Dallas? In Dallas? Yeah, in Dallas or three, yeah. in Dallas, 3.8. Yeah. Yeah, four points. We have home field. That's dropping home field down to like a point and a half or so. Just kind of waving our hands at it. This doesn't happen too often. That's a pretty big edge. It is. It kind of makes me wonder about Massey Peabody, to be honest with you. But that puts me on that side of it. Audie's with us. I want to say the largest edge I've ever seen from Massey Peabody. Last week, the Steelers played the. Just remind me who they played on Sunday night. Chargers, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And. Massey Peabody, if I was correct, the line was Steelers plus six and a half. Can you just quickly look if the Steelers played the Chargers right now, what Massey Peabody? It was a six-point mistake on the line. Is that right? The Steelers were plus six and a half. Yeah. What, did Massey, what would Massey Peabody so have? Right now, if they, if we, we've been a little slow to pick up on the Chargers. Um, where are They've they? been inconsistent as well. So, I mean, yeah, I'm pretty sure right I checked be Massey slow. Peabody before the Sunday night game and it had the Steelers favored in that game. Well, I, we, on a neutral field with it, we had this would have them about half a point. So, yeah, but um, the line was Steelers plus six and a half. Yeah, plus six and a half. Plus yeah. six and a half for the Steelers. That was the, we, I know, we've been, I, we've been hypothetically, slow. if one bet, I might have bet on the Steelers plus six and a half. We've been slow on the Chargers. I wish we liked the Chargers better. Let's talk about the night game. The night I'll just game point out that I'm taking the Cowboys on that one just because. Okay, good. So we're even, we're even on that one. Night game, Buffalo and New Orleans. Oh. Buffalo Bills. I mean, talk about another team that's up and down. There's yeah. a lot of teams like this in the NFL right now. Talk about another Saints up and down. So a really interesting matchup. Line is about five and a half. Bills by about five and a half. Who you got? It's, uh, it's in Buffalo. No, it's in New Orleans. Oh, that's that's a huge difference. Okay, yeah, that because uh, I well Buffalo New Orleans are an interesting pair because that's the one play a couple places where I believe the home field advantage really is more than a couple points at this still. I would try to talk you off of believing that the Superdome offers a home field advantage. I think that's more urban myth than anything. Buffalo, different matter, especially late. It's season. getting down to the time of year where I think Buffalo really does have an advantage. But Are you yeah. because of the weather, is that? Yes. The, uh... Yeah, 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 yeah. So I mean, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll go first for this one. I'll, I'll take. I'm going to take the Buffalo. Uh, Buffalo to turn it around. Okay, Buffalo minus five and a half. You got them. Yeah, Adi, I, I've, I've still got I'm also taking Buffalo. You're an AFC East guy. If there's any division you should know, this should be it. So you're all on the bills here. Okay. Hey, 
and 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 Eric is an NFC South guy. So what do you got on the Saints there, Eric? Oh, they right now they're not good. I mean, if Jameis is out, uh, well, thank God they signed Taysom Hill to a ninety million dollar contract. <laughs> what a joke! But either way, um, you know. No, I, I, the Bills are the better team. The Bills are, I, I, I like the Bills in the game. The Saints have a good defense, but actually the last four or five weeks, the, Bills, the Saints defense has not played well. Um, if the Bills get to 21 points, 24 points, they're going to win that game and they're going to cover. So I, I, I like the Bills in the game. I am an okay. NFC South guy. I just think the Saints, they're just not going to generate enough offense. But they put their all their energy into well. beating the Bucks twice a year and not, there's not much left over. <laughs> I, I'm not happy about that. Okay, I got to say, Massey Peabody, well-known New Orleans Saints lovers, got to stay with my boys and take the Saints on that one to pull at least closer than they're expected to lose by. All right, your Buccaneers, and we talked about the Colts game. Colts hosting them on Sunday, the Bucks favor by two and a half. I'll go first. Um, I'm going to take. I'm going to take. Uh, I'm going to take the. Who do I got? Who do I like here? I like the. I like the Bucks. I like the Bucks. We think the spread. We're not quite as big a believer in the. And the Colts says, I mean, come on, it's hard not to like what they did last week, but we're still on the Bucs. Well, you know, I'm going to take the Bucs, but I will say the Bucs are not a great road team this year. They obviously lost to the Washington football team. They barely beat uh, New England on the road. They, they didn't beat uh, the Patri- uh, Eagles by that much. But I think I like that spread. If, if you told me the Bucs were minus five and a half, I wouldn't like it. Bucs minus two and a half, I like it. I like the Bucs, giving two and a half. I'm going to take the Colts. I think uh, I think they're I think the Bucks defense is a little suspect still right now, and I think the Colts have the ability to just kind of run it, and that really reduces the number of drives that Tom Brady can be in the game. So I feel like, uh, the but Colts I know you know this, Shane. The Bucks, the Bucks are the number one defense in the NFL against the run. It's their pass defense that's no yeah. good. So well, if Carson, you want Wentz, to, it, Carson Wentz has learned that whole Joey Flacco pass interference move. That's true. You got a point. <laughs> so that's, good that's, point. That's, and the Bucks, take, and the Bucks are the number now. one penalized team in the NFL, and they love pass interfering. So there you go. All right, I, love, the I love the, the narratives that are being spun here. <laughs> and I can't it come there. Very analytical, Audie. I just gave you two <laughs> stats, Audie. They are the number one run defense I in the know, NFL. I know, but I think but that's, of course, because their pass defense stinks and people want to pass on them. I'm going with the line. I'm going with the line. The uh, line? What the does bucks. that mean? I'm taking the bucks. Okay. There you you go. know you're betting against the line, right? I know I'm betting against the spread, but minus two and a half. Okay, you like the favorites. All right, let's do two other quick ones. Rams, Packers, again, two relatively mysterious teams, both vying for that number one spot in the NFC. The line here is packed by one. They're hosting. If you think there's an advantage to some of these late season games in the North, then you might think the Packs have a bit more home field advantage here. Who do you got? I'm going to take the I got, Packers. I got one. Green Bay. I just got Green Bay because this 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 guy Rogers gets COVID, unvaccinated. Delta just just tosses it off, and he's back. He's Superman. There you go. <laughs> it's the it's all the ivermectin he took. <laughs> it's yeah. the ivermectin that he took. Well, Superman it. lost to the number one NFL quarterback over the last six weeks, Kirk Cousins, last week. Yeah, by the way, that was he, quite a game, though. That was quite. Well, a game. it was a great game. I'm, but I'm I'm going with the Packers as well at home. Okay, I'm by myself on the Rams. I hate betting on the Rams here, but I'm got to, I'm, just, I'm just playing my model all the way down the road here, and we have the Rams actually as the favorite on the road against the Pack. So my God, wow. help me on that one. Last one, I think this is the Sunday night game. Browns going to Baltimore. I think it's the first of two late season games between these two division rivals. A real anything could happen with this division with these two teams still is playing. Is Lamar Jackson playing? 
I, I don't, I've got to believe he is, but I, we'd yeah. never he had really... an illness, right? It was a non COVID related illness. That's right. He was, it was, I think it was GI or something. He was all buckled up, but um, this game is four points. The Ravens are favored by four at home against the Browns. It's interesting. It's Ravens. interesting. I'm taking the Ravens. Yeah. That I think spread, I'm, I'm going to have to take the Ravens true. I mean, I, I, I obviously I opened this whole thing up questioning the Ravens, but like That's the right, Browns are in complete yes, disarray. I, I think the Browns are even more chaotic right now. So I'm going to take the Ravens, but I, I mean, it could go either way. High variance on that game. Adi. Everybody tracking our forecast here. Can I just, yeah, we're right. it's, it's written down as it's being spoken into the ether and recorded okay. digitally. It's I don't know what the hell I'm doing, but I, I will say that uh, if, if, if Shane is right, that the, 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 uh, the Ravens have won a lot of close ones that would suggest they're overrated. Um, but you know, I have nothing else to add to the story other than that's just- good. I like it. It's a good. That's Shane. I mean, Adi, we depend on you to bring a little statistical parsimony to this. So I like that argument. I'm going to go Massey Peabody, which likes the Ravens a bit more, just a little bit more than the market here. I think the Browns are really hard to understand. There's a lot of teams in the NFL this year that are really hard to understand. The Browns are like almost Exhibit A there. But yep. I'm going to go. I'm going to go Ravens and expect Junk Jackson to give them a little bit of a bump when they come back. And that's clearly what Massey Peabody thinks too. All right, guys. There are some. Let's maybe we'll keep track of those this week and report our records at the end of the good Thanksgiving weekend. Now we've got both NFL and college football to watch over the next few days. Gentlemen, that has been three quarters of Wharton Money, but we still have another quarter to go. We have Todd Golan coming back about the third time. College basketball coach out at U.S. University of San Francisco. Big analytics guy. One of our. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter. Fourth quarter has become our interview segment. In the time of COVID, we are delighted to welcome back to the show, Todd Golan. Todd is head coach of the University of San Francisco men's basketball team, the Dons. They're in the West Coast Conference out there playing against uh, Gonzaga. You might have heard of Gonzaga. They got BYU. They got Loyola Marymount. They got a long tradition there at USF. We've had the privilege of having Todd on the show a couple of times before, a couple of years now. And in fact, it'd be worth coming up. Why, why don't we grab, we must've read about him somewhere. Somebody turned us on to him and we've been delighted every time we have a chance to talk with him. I've got Eric Bradley here with me to spend a few minutes with coach golden. Welcome back. Good to see you. It's uh, great to be back and uh, great to be here with you guys. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me. Much appreciated. Listen, um, we're lucky. We, we got you on the day that you were not, you were named Top 40 under 40, is that it? The athletic in men's basketball, top 40 under 40. Number 10 on your list, Todd <laughs> Golan. <laughs> Happy to see it, Todd. Make your day. Real big news for you out there. Uh, you know what? I think uh, anytime, you know, you can be recognized amongst your peers, you know, it's, it's obviously, it feels great. And, and really, it speaks to the growth that we've been able to have within our program, I think, and the stability and continual uh, steps up the ladder and, and obviously getting off to a great start this year hasn't hurt, but uh, I'm greatly appreciative of it. And I think it really speaks really to our student athletes, and my staff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned the start, you guys are off to a six and no start, which is awesome. You came out of the gate strong last year, knocked off UVA about this time of year last year, which was fun. Tell us a little bit about what happened over the course of the season. We, you know, you're, we have a pretty short roster of Wharton Moneyball teams and you are squarely like the college basketball team for us maybe just after University of Pennsylvania 
We're, sometimes makes the tournament. So we're always pulling for you. And y'all faded a little bit last year. How would you characterize what happened last year and what's going on so far this year? Yeah, last year was unique for, for many reasons, as we know. Uh, we, we did. We got off to a really good start. Uh, beating Virginia on national TV was a great win for us. And uh, we went on the road, won at Nevada by 25, uh, beat Grand Canyon. We had some really good non-conference wins. Um, but a little bit, we were – our, our environment here in San Francisco was not ideal. We weren't allowed to host home games in the non-conference. So we were traveling to Connecticut and to Oregon, Vegas. We were like a tra- we were like the Globetrotters. We were, you know, mm-hmm. just games and we had to go all over the country to play. And it wasn't until New Year's that we were able to host uh, our first game. And uh, we got off to a pretty good start in conference play. We were four and three uh, and had a good win over Santa Clara. And then the unfortunate uh, COVID pause, which hit most, you know, which hit a lot of programs last year. Um, but we, we got ravaged pretty good. We were, uh, we had six positives at the same time and we had to shut down practice oh for two, uh, two weeks. So we weren't allowed to be together on the floor for 10 days. And then we were able to get one or two practices before we got back into our schedule and, and just transparently, it wasn't enough. We weren't healthy and, uh, you know, <clears throat> had a lot of close losses down the stretch. We weren't able really to get our, our feet back under us. We had a couple of starters get COVID. And it was just uh, it was more of a just get through the year than anything else. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, well Todd, just but related year- to that, since you're an analytics oriented program, are you analytics around COVID with how you talk to your players around odds of vaccination versus non-vaccination? I mean, if we're going to break the analytics omelet, let's break it all the way. Well, the, the great thing about that is I didn't have to do much uh, in terms of explaining that to our guys. I, I'm fortunate all of our players uh, were quick to get vaccinated without any nudging or pushing from the staff, which made my life a lot easier. Uh, and it's allowed us to have a very fluid uh, year this year uh, because we've just had no issues with COVID. And, you know, I know a lot of teams are still dealing with whether it's players being unvaccinated or COVID cases and pauses, which kind of messing up some of their deal so far we, we've been able to avoid that knock on wood and because we're 100 percent vaccinated i think we'll be pretty successful that way mm-hmm. coach you're off to the 6-0 start but we think of you as being very analytics uh, analytics oriented i mean you care about lots of aspects of course but you pay attention to those kinds of things how do you judge your team's performance beyond the wins and losses how do you know whether your team's performing the way you want them to whether or not they've won whether or not they're undefeated right now yeah no it's a it's super Great question. I think the one thing we do, and, and we are, we're incredibly analytically driven. Uh, some would argue too much, but we, it's just the frame that the frame that we view things through and the way our, uh, my mind works and a lot of the guys on my staff, you know, so we'll, we'll use like Ken Palm, you know, that's a, someone that uh, has a data driven approach into how he evaluates teams and Bart Torvik's another guy that has an analytical site where he ranks teams based upon uh, performance and things of that nature. So we have that kind of as a guide as to what, we're expected to do in a given game. And honestly, get a little unhealthy at times. Uh, I'll give last night as an example, we hosted Morgan state and uh, we were 21 point favorites on Kempom. And uh, we had a 26 point lead with about six minutes to go. And I have half my staff telling me, Hey, keep the starters in. Let's see how high we can get this. And I have <laughs> saying, Hey, let's rest these guys. We've got two more games this week. And, you know, I, I even think back to when I was playing only about 12 years ago, when you when you win by 16 at home against anybody, you're pretty excited. We won by 16 last night. Um, but me and then Jonathan Sapphire, who's one of my assistant coaches, who's really, really bright and incredibly analytically driven. 
we're, we're a little disappointed because it was five points under what our expected <laughs> winning was. So, um, these are the conversations and, and the things that we're having and we're seeing. Uh, but I, I would say Ken Palm for sure is, is one way that we really try to evaluate how we're doing, obviously from a macro perspective and in, in where we are, but also a micro perspective in each part of the game, whether it's rebounding, effective field goal percentage, turnover rate, all those different things. Uh, that's kind of our, where we use it and how we measure different things. Coach, you just mentioned this debate on the bench. Can you know? I don't know how heavy your debate was, but some guys want to keep playing. Some guys want to want to rest your want to rest your players. To what extent do you bring science and analytics to the rest and health question as well? Uh, that's we're knock on wood. We've made a lot of strides there. Uh, I think in our strength and conditioning department, we've uh, been able to acquire some software and some different devices that allow us to measure. Uh, guys recovery and, and where we're at for example we lifted weights just before I got on with you guys and my strength and conditioning coach was like hey Todd these two guys right here are a little fatigued we got to make sure we're smart in our approach and what we do on the floor with them tomorrow leading into our games on Thursday and Friday so uh, we're, we're always just trying to gather as many data points as possible when we're evaluating everything from on-court performance to off-court performance really. Let's stay with that for just a real quick second, because it's always been an interesting issue to me. One of the first things we came across when we started doing this show was this idea of heterogeneity in training. And, the, you know, when when we when Eric and I were younger playing sports, everybody did the same thing. By God, you know, everything was exactly the same. And now everybody's saying, well, no, you got to treat people differently. How is it when when you're when your strength and conditioning guys say these two players are a little fatigued, they need to be treated differently. Is that okay with them? Is it okay with the rest of the team? And how do you make that okay to treat them so differently? Yeah, it's it's a challenge. Uh, I, I think there's um, different ways to approach it, but we're we're a pretty mature group. Uh, we're you know I'm fortunate. I have a ton of seniors. Uh, the guys that we added to this team, like I added three graduate transfers two guys that had Ivy league undergraduate degrees. So these guys are brighter than I am. Uh, so they understand it and they're, they're willing to, to uh, be coached a little differently and be managed a little differently. Um, okay. and, and I think because we've been successful, the guys are very receptive to the way that, that we coach them. Mm-hmm. Could you talk, I think one of the things Cade mentioned at the beginning of the interview that, you know, you've been on multiple times and some people may be unfamiliar with one of the things you did, which I know we talk about on the show all the time, is how you play around with combinations of players. One of the things we talk about that's hard in team sports is understanding interactions between players, but you have a structured analytical way of thinking about who to play together. Could you just remind our listeners about how you think about that and how you, in some sense, Make sure you have enough variation so that you can actually assess who's playing well with whom. Yeah, and Eric, are you are you thinking about practice in particular? That, I know, I know. Todd's talked. The coach has told talked about it in practice, but yeah. I'd also love to hear about how he thinks about interactions in the game as well. Right. So to refresh on the practice, what we do is we we just stat every live five on five possession, which gives us a lot of data points uh, to evaluate our guys. Really, where it's it's continued to be really good as a teaching tool because what we do is we pair that data with film and then we show and teach our guys through that lens. And so it's able to really target different areas for them to improve personally. And then when it comes to the players playing together, uh, we, we really do spend a lot of time trying to figure out the different player combinations and really where it starts and finishes is with what we call usage. Um, and usage is a term in basketball for uh, guys that end possession. So you end a possession by shooting, by turning it over or by getting fouled. And really, uh, obviously, a team has 100% usage generally 
broken upon the five guys on the floor. So on average, a guy would use 20% of the possessions that they're on the floor. But what we ran into last year, which was an issue, is too often we had lineups where our, on average they would use that combination didn't have enough usage. We didn't have enough guys that were able to finish possessions. So the guys that could do it were getting stretched too thin. They were having to use too many possessions, and they didn't have enough support from the other guys. And so where we made a big jump, and we solved it a lot through recruiting, to be honest, but we went out and found more front court scorers, guys that were comfortable using possessions, and that's taken a lot of pressure off of our back court. And I think if, if you studied our team, you would have saw that last year we had really good guards. We were really good in the back court. Our wings were good, but we just didn't have enough front court usage scoring. So it led to our volatility. We could beat anybody because we shot so many threes, but then we could also lose to anybody because we shot so many threes. And we right. We had a really low floor, whereas this year, because we've added these pieces, um, knock on what we're second or third in the country right now in two point field goal percentage. Now, we still shoot a lot of threes, but the twos that we shoot, we make. And that's really raised our floor. So I, I really feel like it's it's uh, it's heightened our floor and heightened our ceiling to where we can go. But just having additional guys that can f- finish and use possessions makes everybody's life a lot easier, makes the shots that they shoot more efficient. Um, and if you can continue to spread that out and evenly distribute it, uh, it makes everybody so it makes them a weapon. And you got to focus and concentrate on all five guys defensively. That's an example of uh, how your analysis affects your recruiting because it it showed you what you needed. How else does what else is the connection between how how you go about running your program and your ability to pull new players in, especially in the day and age of the portal where it's not any just not just high school recruiting, it's it's a, a college level as well. No, it's, it's honestly the, the portal. Uh, I, I tell people this all the time. I really believe college basketball has changed more over the last 12 to 24 months than it had in the previous 20 years oh, uh, because of the addition of the transfer portal. And then they've, they've created rules and legislation that uh, gives more freedom to the student athletes. But in a sense, I, I would argue it might be, uh, better off for the the coaches and the people that are trying to build these rosters because of the flexibility. And so, um, you know, you have anywhere between 12 and 1500 kids in the portal last year, a lot less than that ended up with scholarships. I can promise you that. And yeah. we were able to go and we added three, like I said, three grad transfers and two other guys that were transfers that we knew we had data for, of them from division one basketball. We knew what type of player they could be at this level where for us, it just, it eliminates a lot of the misses. You know, you're trying to go and evaluate a 17 year old kid. You don't know how much more he's going to grow. You don't know exactly how good he is against certain level of competition. It takes out a lot of the guesswork. So for a program like us that really does dive in and, and, and appreciate the data, uh, the portal and, and getting transfers ha- has been really beneficial. And I think it's a, it's a healthy, uh, you have to have a healthy mix. You have to have good young players in your program that, mm-hmm to build that nucleus and, and, you know, understand what the program is about, continue to build the culture and those things, but to be able to go out and get a guy like Yaya Masalski, who was a grad transfer from San Diego, he was 10 points, eight rebounds, two and a half blocks a game last year. Like we knew we were plugging and playing that into our starting lineup with our great backcourt. We, we knew we were going to get better if we didn't mess it up as coaches, you know, as long as we can get these guys to play well together, that it would work out. And uh, a lot of the thing areas that we were deficient last year, we've been able to make a jump because of these additions in the portal. Where do you think your advantage relative to other programs is on that front? So it's really neat to hear you're saying you're bringing analytics to help you better identify both your needs and what's out there to fill those needs. 
why are you better at that than any other program? Especially, I mean, there are other programs with many more resources. I assume they have big, or maybe not big, but dedicated analytics groups. Is your advantage because you understand your own program better because how data, how much into the data you are, or, or do you have a team of folks there that are doing better analytics than other schools are? Why do you have an advantage when it comes to this? I honestly, I think it's, I think we, we understand it a little bit. You know, we, we just have the ability to look at the data and I feel like get a very good understanding of what type of player these guys are. And again, we're, we're watching film obviously too, to make sure that uh, we're not losing anything in translation, but uh, Zane Meeks, for example, a young man that we got, that was a transfer from Nevada, Reno, you know, he averaged 11 points and seven rebounds or sorry, nine and a half points and seven rebounds in 21 minutes a game for them. We played them. We knew what type of player he was. He's a stretch big. He can really shoot the ball. Um, so he has all these different data points. He's, he's proven that he can be an effective, efficient scorer at the division one level. And uh, again, we needed a guy in the front court that could stretch the floor. And he has, he is a high usage kid. He averaged, I think he used 24, 25% of the possessions when he played at Nevada. So we see him, we're like, shoot, we really think this guy can really help us. And so then we have to go out and beat other people in recruiting. But a kid like Zane and his father, they, they were really data-driven. They, they understood Ken Palm. They understood what we talk about in recruiting, how we evaluate players. And so they were buying into that. They were like, shoot, you know, this coach is going to come and let me shoot a lot of threes at 6'9". All right, I want to go play for that guy. You know, that, these are the conversations that we're having um and obviously we've gotten a little bit of uh we've gotten a little respect and people have talked about kind of our forward thinking ways and, and I think some of the guys especially you know uh guys that have been in college for a little bit understand and appreciate it especially if they've been in programs where it isn't as prevalent right like they're like man we're we're still stuck in the old ways or whatever it may be I want you know, these guys at least are taking that a different approach let's, let's go give that a roll Real quick follow-up. Eric wants to jump in, but just one quick follow-up on that. Do you, you talk about, you've talked before about running practices in a way that you're like, you keep score on, you score everything. And then you play the guys that do best in practice. It sounded so meritocratic, like objectively meritocratic. I'm sure there's nuances to that, but do you think you can cultivate a reputation for the program being meritocratic? And would that become a recruiting advantage in and of itself? Guys feel like they're not getting treated right in one program. And you're like, just come here and produce and you're going to be on the, and you're going to be on the court. hundred percent. And that's a big part of, and, and we talk about it on the front end every time. And what that does is that you avoid having any issues when the guys get to campus. Like, Hey, um, just understand you have to, you know, at a certain point, uh, produce at this level and you have to beat this guy out, this guy out, this guy out and make sure they understand that. So when they get here, it's like, Oh coach, I'm not playing. What's going on? Well, we told you, you have to, you know, be this level of effective score. You have to beat this and this guy out. You got to do these things and you haven't done that. So you're not getting the playing time that you thought you might get. Or if you do, whether you're a scholarship guy or a walk on, if you're the best in your spot, you're going to play. So, um, and, and I was, a, I was a walk on at St. Mary's when I first got there before earning a scholarship. So it's a lot easier for me to do that. Cause I'm like, Hey, it, it was me. So yeah, you got to go do it too. Right. Right. Yeah, I was going to ask you a uh, coach about, I'll call it individual level position expectations and how those vary. Like you would even mention the guy from San Diego that you brought in was a 10, eight guy. Maybe you could have gotten a different person in that wouldn't have been as high on scoring and rebounding, but better on other dimensions. How do you decide a, how to, I'll call it allocate criteria into certain positions. And if you have to say, I could have this person with these strengths or this person with these strengths, but probably I can't have both. Yeah. How do you think about that problem? So basically in, and because it's worked out well this year, my plan is to do this again at the end of this season. But really what we did 
when we got eliminated from our conference tournament, we, I came back with a couple of the guys on my staff and ba- we just put all of our roster on the board and then who we we're losing, how many scholarships we had available, what we thought we needed from a production standpoint, what positions um, and et cetera. And then we, you know, obviously we, we kept our backcourt in tow, which is one of the best backcourts around Jamari Bouye and Khalil Shabazz. They're great players. So we felt comfortable with our backcourt. We wanted to add one more guy for depth, but really we knew we had to focus on the front court. Like that was an area where we needed to beef up and get better. And then we knew we needed, we were deficient scoring inside and we weren't physical enough. So those are two areas that we really addressed um, with those four guys that we brought in. And every guy we brought in was significantly bigger than guys that we've had on the roster before. They were all six, nine or bigger. They all weighed 240 pounds and bigger. And we were just, we were significantly, uh, just undersized last year's the bottom line. So we knew that we had to address that and we were fortunate enough to be able to do it. Uh, and so my, I just mean also coach something like the following, like you could imagine taking like outcomes of games, winning, losing, or point differential and seeing whether, as you said, does taller players, does that add, does heavier players add? I'm just wondering, like, you know, I'll use the language of statistics. How do you decide priority weights? Like, as they are, you could collect all kinds of data and run some statistical model I'm just wondering how you guys think about how to assign priority weights to different components of player uh, uh, performance. Yeah, uh, it's I, I think like and I'm not sure we were I, it's uh, we try to make it a little less complicated, I would say, in terms of just knowing like, all right, like we, we just need to get better big guys. And, and for us, we, we just didn't have much production in the front court. So and, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful to the guys in our program, but we knew it wasn't going to take much in terms of like who we're going to get that would be better. Now we were also fortunate because like Yalian Masalski, for example, we, we had a very good look at him for four years. He played in our conference. Like we, we knew he was a monster defensively. We thought him getting around some more talented guards would lead to him being a more efficient scorer inside. Uh, and all those things have, have worked out. So I think every year it'll be a little different Eric, in terms of where we're trying to really improve our roster Whereas this year we lose our point guard, um, Jamari Bouye is a fifth year now, uh, has a chance to play in the NBA, is a very good player. We will need to add a good guard. Now, it probably will be through the portal. It'll probably be a, an older guy that we know has had success. Um, but that we'll have to address that. So it'll, it'll differentiate, but it mainly it'll be based off who's on the roster and who we think within a roster already is capable of playing at a top 25, top 40 level. Related, how do you think about culture and how do you think about evaluating potential players make up their character is this a big thing for you if so how do you get at it or and how do you think it sits with analytics some you know we tend to think of coaches as being big culture folks or maybe a little more analytics and some of the analytics folks get criticized for not being big enough on culture how do those two sit for you and how do you work on getting the right pieces for it yeah it's not a perfect science but we we do try to turn that the cultural piece into an analytical piece as well in terms of how we evaluate the student athlete and and there's a lot of data points that you can use when evaluating them outside of basketball to determine how they fit um and and they're we, we look at everything. It's, we look at, obviously, we look at their high school GPAs. We look at where they went to high school. We look at what type of household they came from, whether it was a two-parent household or one-parent household. Uh, we look and see if they've obviously gotten any trouble in their high school career. What type of trouble was it? Was it, was it uh, you know, was it looking at somebody's uh, homework before class or was it, you know, speed, you know, different things like that? Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked to, obviously, their counselors, their coaches, and really what we're trying to do is just accumulate as much data on this as we can 
and then make an informed decision. We've gotten it wrong before too. Um, but we get it, we get it right more often than we get it wrong because of that. And, uh, so we, we do take that off the court piece, try to evaluate the best we can, and then we merge it. And obviously the basketball piece is equally as important, um, but we will not take uh, a star player that we worry will, uh, will make our culture bad because it's just not worth it. As one of, uh, one of my former coach, Randy Bennett at St. Mary's told us back in 2005, one turd ruins the Brownie mix. And I think that, <laughs> I, I think that rings true. For, for team sports, you know, you have one guy that, that for whatever reason, just isn't on the same page, he could blow the whole team up. And so we really try to get that right uh, on the front end. All right. Well, listen, uh, we really appreciate your taking the time to be with us. We could go two more quarters with you, probably fascinating to talk to you. Wish you the best with the season. Love the start you're off to, and we will definitely be following you. Awesome. Kate, Eric, I appreciate you guys. Love, uh, love what you guys do. I'm a big fan and uh, excited to talk to you guys again soon. Thanks, man. Much appreciated. Todd Golan, head coach of the University of San Francisco men's basketball team. Your Wharton Moneyball Dons off to a 6-0 start out there in the West Coast Conference. They've got some big games ahead of them. Always happy to talk to Coach Golan. That has been two hours of Sports Analytics, two hours of Wharton Moneyball. We do it every week here on SiriusXM for the whole crew, for Eric Bradley, who's been with me for the whole two hours, for Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, for the boss man, Matty Dats, for the associate boss man, Dion Simpkins. Still miss you, Dion. Need to get back around you. Wish you guys the best. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.